All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're so productive. Quick, call an Uber to get to your workspace after your dentist appointment runs late. No time to go out for lunch, so just order through Seamless and get back to editing that Google Doc with those four other freelancers in three different time zones. You gotta remember, though, to calculate those quarterly earnings and put together that PowerPoint before Friday. I mean, sure, you got bogged down in four meetings yesterday, and you have 37 emails you need to respond to. And when you think about it, you aren't really making much more money than you did in 2010. Plus, with your new rent increase, you sure aren't saving any money. But all in all, it really feels like you get more done faster than ever before. And as long as everything keeps going like this, and no one in your family gets sick, and your company, the company, keeps growing and giving you work... It's all good, right? It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Anoush Samarodi. Today, we ask a big, hairy question. Why has all this new technology and wealth and new ways of working made us feel less financially secure? And actually, why has it made some people... Really, really mad. Think about it. Uber is valued at $62.5 billion. But the drivers allege that they have to work 60 to 80 hours a week just to cover their costs. Google employs over 150,000 people in and around the San Francisco area. But residents throw rocks and are pissed off that gentrification is leading to rising housing costs and evictions that are soaring. The average apartment there costs over $3,700 a month. Twitter, a tech darling, debuts on the stock market at 26 bucks a share. But as that price slides, investors worry. Why aren't more people tweeting? Why isn't the company growing like it was before? Well, the answer could be that we are operating in this new world by old rules. It's time for us to make some big changes. And I don't just mean nominating Donald Trump or feeling the burn. What do you call yourself? Not just sexy honcho man. Not sexy honcho man. Okay. Um, God, it's hard to think of myself in any other way. Uh, It could mean rethinking the American way entirely. At least, that's what this guy thinks. Um, I'm Douglas Rushkoff. (laughs) I'm the author of Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. I write about media, technology, and society. And I'm a professor of media theory and digital economics at CUNY Queens. How can we feel as though we are being more productive than ever, that there's innovation after innovation, and yet you started writing this book because CEOs were kind of quietly on the sly. They would kind of pull you aside with a dirty little question, which was, what do I do 
if I can't continue to grow my company. They would come up to me and say, gosh, you know, I really have such a better vision for this company than my shareholders are letting me execute. They want companies to grow a hundred times in 18 months. That's really, really hard to do. And how can you have 20 companies grow a hundred times in 18 months? And you can't. Be, you kind of can't. But what I'm trying to say is that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That growth is an albatross. I was at the meeting of presidents and vice presidents of a Fortune 50 company. And the CEO got up there and said, you know, last year we had 4.7% growth and that was good. But this year, we need to return to our shareholders 5.3% growth. Our growth has to exceed the S&P. And he started chanting 5.3, 5.3. And these banners came down from the ceiling, 5.3. And I got up there to do my keynote after that, and I'm just freaked out. And I say, Jesus, if one of the world's biggest corporations can't get by without growing – then all is lost. Isn't this multi-billion dollar company big enough? Is there such a thing as big enough? And uh, that was one of the CEOs that came and said, what do we do? How do we say this? How do I explain this? How do I articulate this to the shareholders? Because they want to be environmentally responsible. They want to sleep at night. So what I tell them is about trying to move towards dividends, trying to move towards um, community development. It's really coming up with ways of articulating a slower growth trajectory that doesn't violate their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. Can I just dumb this down like big time? Yeah. And by basically saying that, Doug, you are the therapist to these companies saying, you know, you've done great. And maybe you need to tell your shareholders that this marriage is a fine marriage. And just because it's not fire and romance anymore – that's okay. Right. It's Kinda? almost, yeah, that, that corporate America has to reach its middle age. You know, and that's okay. It's not said there'll still be little young shoots and upstarts. <laughs> you know, we can't make Twitter behave in a way that it, that it shouldn't. We have to let companies be what they are rather than doing this cookie-cutter industrial age approach where the company comes in, we get the investment, we pivot the company into something it's not in order to get a 100x return, sell it. Like what? Like Tumblr? Let's sell Tumblr for a billion dollars, even though it has no revenue, to a dying Yahoo, which is now taking it all as a loss. You know, it's just not going to work. You know, where if they did take the family business approach, then the question becomes less a question of how can I make enough money with my company so my kids can inherit a bunch of cash? And rather, how can I create such a sustainable company that it can sustain future generations of mm -hmm. my family? Let's talk about how we got here to this point where we're saying that a, a company is merely founded for an exit strategy. Well, in some ways, this is payback for what we tech people did to Wall Street in 1999. You know, there were all of these young techies going to Wall Street and getting all this money for dot-com this and dot-com right. that, and it all crashed. And I think Wall Street kind of came back and said, all right, we're not going to do it their way. They're going to do it our way. Hmm. Right. So a young developer, they come up with an idea in their dorm room, and it looks like it's going to work. And they're excited because they're going to disrupt some industry, you know, books or music or, you know, they're going to disrupt something. But then the first thing they do 
is they run to daddy at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley and say, how do I get rich off this? And that's really because the other people before them have modeled that. And they get to IPO and then they're rich. So a lot of young developers... And just to add, yeah. like for anybody who is a young techie thinking like, I don't have no daddy at Goldman Sachs. You're talking about a symbolic a daddy. A symbolic daddy, right. Yeah. Not their actual father uh-huh. at Goldman Sachs. But I understand what it's like because I was one of those kids in the 90s to be an internet nerd and nobody (laughs) thinks that this is going to amount to anything. They thought that those of us involved in digital technology may as well have been playing Dungeons and Dragons, you know, or just playing video games. So the fact that a bank or an investor or AT&T or someone wants to come and play with you means it must be real. If some big guy with money is coming and saying, I'm going to back this, I'm going to value your little thing at $20 million tonight, How do you not take that? It's really, you know, it's really hard. But what they do by taking that is create a really scary set of expectations. So if you take $20 million from a venture capitalist, he or she expects you to make 100 times that before you're done. So even a company like Twitter, which I think of as a tremendous success, this is a company that makes $500 million a quarter in revenue. That's $2 billion a year in revenue for a company that's 140 characters, text messages. They're considered an abject failure by Wall Street. And I think Twitter is just the perfect example to me because there was a point where they were changing it. And I was like, you know what? It's kind of cool the way it is. Can we just... Can we just be okay with what Twitter is? It is 140 characters. I like it enough. Maybe it's not going to grow. And could we just say that's fine? No, it's the problem. We can't. $2 billion a year is not enough in order to have that explosive Mm -hmm. exit. You know, this is what you're supposed to do. When you see the first generation digital companies that are doing that and then either getting hated or destroying their marketplaces, you're starting to see second generation companies who are using very similar models, but letting other people in on the value equation. So like what? Right here in New York, there's a startup called Juno which means to challenge Uber, of all things. I know it sounds impossible. (laughs) But it's almost the same model as Uber, except the drivers own half the company. So when you become a driver, the amount that you've driven corresponds to how many shares, how much percent of that company you own. So this is a company that is going to pay its drivers more, let its drivers be part of of the value that they've created. So even if these companies really are just the research and development for automatic robot cars that will replace them someday, at least they now own shares in the company that will someday replace their labor. Just another example, potentially Etsy could have been one of these sort of half ownership by, I mean, they take a cut from people who make Mm -hmm. crafts and then sell them on their site. But they also recently had an IPO. And when they went public, The stock price was just boom, high up there. And since then, it's lost a lot of value. Do you think a company like Etsy could have been what you're espousing? They could have, but they would have had to make different choices early on. Etsy ended up taking VC from people who really did demand an exit, whereas a Yancey Strickler with Kickstarter, he didn't take that kind of money. And the money he took, he took under very strict conditions that I'm not going to have an exit and you can't ask me for one. You don't get a vote. You're supporting something that's going to be revenue-based and that we're going to keep alive because he believes in Kickstarter. You know, you can start a business for one of two reasons, either to do that business or to sell that business. And if you're 
creating a business in order to sell it, then yeah, you bring in the VC people. It's like bringing in the mafia when you have a restaurant, you know, and they are going to use it as a front for something else until it's gone. So you're saying that we have the the new tools to do business, the digital things, but they're existing in a business model that's the old way. This is the American way, but you're saying it can't keep going like it this. It can't keep going like, like this. I mean, we already knew corporate growth had gotten out of hand, and then we inject it with these kind of digital steroids, and it just spins even more wildly, and we see these extreme um, divisions of wealth. I mean, there are – I mean, that's the beauty of it. There are alternatives. If you're the CEO of a company, you've got to start doing good shareholder communications and explain to them that we've got to move the value of our stock from a growth stock to a dividend stock, to a stock that's going to make money in the present. But then, okay, so I'm lady shareholder who's like, what do you mean? I don't want dividends. Put the money back into the business. Grow it bigger so that when you do cash out, I get megabucks. Right, but we don't want to cash out. We want to be a great prosperous business. And you will make more money in the long term with a, a higher probability of success if you let us become a successful business rather than adopt these scorched earth policies. Because the problem is when we adopt a scorched earth policy, say like Walmart, we end up bankrupting the communities in which we operate. Or Amazon. Or Amazon, right, or Uber. So, you know, Walmart's big problem now is that the towns where they're operating are going bankrupt. The people are getting too poor. You know, so they're closing down stores now. And Walmart's competitor, which, Miss Shareholder, is what we really should be modeling, mm -hmm. Walmart's competitor, Winco, is owned by the employees. Mm. You know, and because they don't have this tremendous overhead of growth, of paying up to shareholders all this growth, they actually have better margins. They're doing better and I don't putting know, Walmart though. out of business. I don't know, Doug. Socialism, I'm hearing like I'm no. thinking maybe socialism, this is socialism. Socialism no? is about redistributing the spoils after they've been earned. Right? What we're talking about is distributism. What we should get from this is the idea that people should own the means of their own production, that companies shouldn't grow big just for growth's sake. Companies should be as big as they need to be to accomplish their purpose and then be good, profitable, sustainable businesses. Is this sort of division then between uh, the companies at the very top and the people at the bottom who are really feeling squeezed, is this where Bernie Sanders has sort of – found his way onto the stage? It is where Bernie Sanders has found his way. And it's in some ways where Donald Trump's found his way also, mm -hmm. although it's a little bit more perverted. And if you could sort of make what you wanted to happen, Doug Rushkoff for president, what would you want to see happen then? Well, the easiest policy shift to make would be to tax capital gains higher than we tax dividends. You know, when we tax okay. – yep. when So we, spell that out for yeah. my listeners. So capital gains is basically growth. Yep. And what we're doing is saying you can grow all you want and all the money you get from growth, we're not going to tax that much at all. We're going to favor that. Mm -hmm. But if you are making your money through actual work and revenue and dividends, that we're going to tax a whole lot. So legally what we're doing is creating an economic system that's biased – towards promoting growth. We're saying our government values growth and our government wants to discourage revenue. We should be doing the opposite. You know, even Henry Ford understood he had to pay his workers enough so they would be able to afford a car that Ford Motor Company produced. He, Otherwise, the whole system is right, frozen. Right. But 
nobody else is doing. Amazon's not paying its Turks enough to buy a book on Amazon or to have a Prime account. Doug Rushkoff, your book is throwing rocks, rocks or stones. Yeah, Throwing rocks at the Google bus, how growth became the enemy of prosperity. It's always fun to talk to you. Some interesting stuff to think about as we keep trucking along in what must be one of the weirdest election years ever. Many thanks to Doug Rushkoff for explaining some basic economics and reminding us that we are indeed living at a big moment in history. Work, commerce and life are changing fast, but we also have the opportunity to make sure that they are changing for good. So I'm glad we're talking about it. Next week... Now, all of a sudden, I'm thinking, like, I wonder if they cooked my chicken with olive oil at this place. It was horrifying. Tracking my calorie count uh, has definitely encouraged me to walk more. It's also made me neurotic about weighing myself. We asked you to tell us your experiences measuring and quantifying and changing your body. And you told us a look at what all the data and trackers have done, good and bad, for your health. That's next week. Subscribe to Note to Self so you don't miss it. And hey, a big special thank you to those of you who have taken the time over the last couple weeks to rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does make a difference. So if you can spare two seconds, click on some stars, because when you do, we go up just a little bit in the ratings. We get in front of more people and therefore we get to keep making this show. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Ariana Tobin, Amy Eason, and Joe Plord. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and thank you so much for listening. I have an idea for a kicker that I want to do with okay. you. Can we chant 5.3? 5.3? Sure. Cool. 3, 2, 1. 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 5.3! 